Hello, all you fine folks out there listening. Welcome to the What Do You Know podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henson, also known as the Bearded Bard. And with me is my co-host, the equally bearded yet perpetually short Chase Stubbles. Today's topic is vigilantes. So Chase, what do you know about vigilantes? So to start things off, uh, I wanted to talk about definitions of vigilante. How do we define a vigilante? What does it mean to be a vigilante? Because we can't operate without any understanding of what it is to be one. So I pulled a bunch of definitions from a bunch of different dictionaries. Um, I'm not going to bore you guys with the details of that. Um, But basically the layman's term for a vigilante, the layman's definition, is basically anybody who acts without legal authority to stop or punish criminal activity, particularly in response to what is perceived as poor law enforcement or poor justice system, right? So if you think about vigilantism in from like, you know, a pop culture sense, think of superheroes, you know, right. specifically like one superhero that really comes to mind for me anyway, it's just the Punisher, right? Just a good, just a guy going around exacting his own brand of justice. Right. right. And and he takes it a step further than like, say, Batman, because uh, Punisher is more like the judge, jury and executioner, right. whereas Batman does kind of try to work with law enforcement yeah though he does cross many lines yeah and i mean again speaking from a a legal perspective batman and the punisher both uh kind of do more harm than good because a lot of the evidence that they would collect is kind of inadmissible in court because you know it's it's been tampered with or it's been uh obtained illegally so right that's you know but that's neither here nor there. That's, you know, we're talking about fiction. So, but for all those of you who are listening out here, don't do Batman and Punisher stuff because it's not going to help you. <laughs> right. It's also illegal. Yeah. And, and technically, there, there's a difference between, like with Batman, if he stops a crime that's in progress, that's one thing. But when he goes and like dangles them from a balcony saying, who's employing you? You know, that, that's where it crosses a line. I believe most states have some sort of law saying it's okay to stop like something that's in progress. Like if you're walking down the street and someone's being attacked, I believe most states have law saying it's okay to interact and even possibly detain those people until law enforcement can show up. Yeah, uh, citizen's arrest is what I think those qualify under. And I'm not too familiar with the laws on citizen's arrest, but basically the, the, the main gist of it is, is that if you can justify your intervention in somebody else's actions, be them illegal or what you perceive to be illegal, then you can make a citizen's arrest where you can hold them, you can detain that person until actual law enforcement arrives. But that's the key there is that it has to be until an official law enforcement member arrives. You can't just haul them off to jail yourself. You have to call the cops, the police have to show up, they have to detain and then take control of the scene themselves. Right. So again, it's not like, you know, Batman or, you know, Spider-Man or whatever, who just drop people off at the, you know, the police station and expect the cops to do the rest of the work for them. Because if that happens, then the cops are just going to let them go. They can't charge them with a crime, you know, because they weren't there to witness the crime. So at that point, you're doing more harm than good. To, to be fair, I think both Batman and Spider-Man usually just hang them upside down until the police arrive for the most part. But I get what you're saying. Yeah, you know, it's, I, and, but again, even that has its own implications, because if you think about dangling somebody upside down from a from a rope or, a, you know, the spider web in this case, you know, that's a lot of blood, blood rushing to the head. And that's going to cause some brain damage, and, you know. But yeah, a lot of these uh, 
like citizens arrest laws and uh, laws that allow you to interact are like the foundation of like neighborhood watch things like that right. and uh, I don't think we're going to be really talking about that kind of stuff you know that kind of stuff is more about like patrolling and making sure your streets are safe yeah uh, so yeah but the neighborhood watch and stuff like that those aren't really they aren't really designed to deal with crime they're designed more to deal with whatever the neighborhood deems as you know or the HOA or whatever deems as like inappropriate behavior you know yeah, Neighborhood Watch isn't uh, as concerned with, like, actual crime stopping as they are with stopping, like, you know, things that would go against community guidelines, like kids running through people's yards or people being in the neighborhood when they don't live there. You know, right, none of that's right. illegal. It's just kind of like they're trying to protect the property value. Right. I mean, Neighborhood Watch is also, like, watch out for anyone lurking. Yeah. They, you know are usually encouraged to stop any sort of like violence they see depending on the neighborhood watch of course right i mean you do get some of the more official neighborhood watches in like you know really high-end really expensive neighborhoods that like they actually have like you know what's known as or what could be akin to a police or a security force that might have arrest authority and then from there they just expedite them to whatever the um the district or the jurisdiction excuse me the jurisdiction of the local police force so right yeah, but I mean, they're usually encouraged to like watch out. So if they have to, they can call the police. Exactly. And you know, I'm sure they can also chase off anyone who's trying to graffiti something. Yeah. yeah. You know. But um, yeah, I, that's that's not the real focus here. I think we're talking about more of the people who not necessarily try to protect, you know, their neighborhoods. I think we're talking more about the people who dish out their own justice, essentially. Yeah, like the real vigilantes, the, yeah. the real nitty gritty guys, the ones that I take the law into my own hands, you know, those types. Yeah, so. like I... I, I don't even think I would include a lot of like the real life superhero folks in this. Like there's, um, I think he's from Seattle. There's Phoenix Jones. Oh yeah. Says, yeah. Yeah. I heard about that guy years back, man. I was like, yeah. Oh, okay. If I recall correctly, he would just patrol the streets and you know, try to stop muggings and purse snatchers, things like that. Yeah. He never went like full Batman trying to take down organized crime. Nobody does have a sick costume though. Have you seen that? It's been it's been a while, but yeah, he had yeah. a if I remember correctly, it was him too. He was walking down some street or alley and a group of people wanted to fight him. And he's like, oh, so you're agreeing to mutual combat? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and a police officer was standing right there and just let him fight and beat them down. Yeah. But I, well, I mean, he is like a semi-professional or amateur MMA fighter or something like that. So he's yeah. got like some skills to base some yeah. skills, man. And, and when uh, they asked the police officer why he didn't in intervene, he's like, they agreed to mutual combat. It's not against the law. Mutual combat. I mean, I heard um, <laughs> just going off on a little bit of a tangent. And I'm sorry if that, that wasn't actually Phoenix Jones, but I think it was. Yeah. I, I heard that uh, apparently Texas or Kentucky, one of the two, um, they actually just legalized a mutual combat law where now if you want to fight somebody, you have to get two people to agree to mutual combat. There has to be a third party there standing by to witness. And then if you want to, you can just go to town on each other, man. And it, it, it has to be non-lethal. So it can't be like lethal combat. But man, yeah. if you want to, you can just go scrapping. I was going to say, I think most states have some variation of the mutual combat law because that's what allows boxing <laughs> not necessarily boxing is actually a sanctioned sport so you have to have approval from 
XYZ, you know, business or corporation or whatever to actually host a boxing match and to have legal boxing matches. But like, that's why those underground street fighting matches, those like, you know, World Star or, um, oh God, what's the other one? Like the Underground Fighting Championship, those are illegal. It's just oh, yeah. that nobody ever stops them because, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? They're just going to come back in the next warehouse in the next week, you know? Yeah. No, especially when, like, boxing are becoming very much prevalent. You know, you can't have a sanctioned event of illegal activity. Right. So they had to make some sort of amendment to the laws to allow the mutual combat so boxing could exist. Um, some states are definitely more strict and say it has to be a sanctioned sporting event. But some... States and cities are a little looser in their laws. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now we keep getting off track. We need to go back to the vigilantes. The actual vigilantes. It's okay. If we go too far <laughs> off track, I can edit it out later. Yeah, that's fine. So yeah, what um, you know, what do you, what do you know about uh, vigilantes? About an actual event of vigilante justice throughout history or whatever. So a lot of the more recent ones that come, uh, a lot of the ones that come to mind for me are a little more recent. I, I watch a ton of uh, true crime and other YouTubers that cover a lot of these topics. And uh, the one that got me thinking of this topic was uh, Mama Max. And for those of you who don't know who Mama Max is, he's a YouTuber who generally tries to take down pedophiles. Oh. And the way he usually does it, or at least presents it in his videos, is uh, there are some websites that have very lax rules and reporting and they offer or they present themselves as kid friendly but a lot of these predators go on there start trying to groom the kids and Mama Max will go into these websites and pretend to be like a 14 year old girl and he has a team of hackers and uh, actors and he'll go in there he'll essentially reverse groom them in a way to get them to feel safe, secure, and end up giving him personal information, whether it be their name, their Instagram, something like that. And he tries to find out who they are and he'll of course report it and the websites to, I, th I think it's cybertip.org where you can report these things and it'll go to like the FBI and whatnot. And if he doesn't get any response from them after several months, he'll post the predator's face on his YouTube channel and just kind of put them on blast. Okay. Or he'll post saying, hey, I'm seeking information on this person. Here's a picture of their face. And where I think it really gets into the more of the vigilante territory is, uh, and you see this across internet vigilantes in general, is the gray area of hacking mm. where they're not necessarily doing hacking in a legal way. Because, of course, you know there's white hat hackers, black hat hackers. We have your gray hats who will do illegal hacking for a greater cause. Right. And, you know, they do work with law enforcement from time to time, but they also take things into their own hands sometimes. Okay. You know, most famous, of course, being Anonymous. There's a few Russian groups that tackle it. There's, there's a number of them that tackle... Um, like child porn and all that. Right. So. Yeah. That's, it's, it's really interesting bringing up the aspect of uh, modern vigilantes as being more of like doxers. 
you know, where it's like, because you, you find all this information about people online and, you know, fun fact for those of you that might be listening that don't know, if you post something on Facebook and it's public and it's listed, anybody can do what they want with that information. Right. As long as it's not really illegal, like they like I can't like sign up as like a credit card in your name or anything like that. But like if you post your address online, you're posting your address online and then I can go and I can visit your house. And as long as I'm not like illegally on your property, like you really can't do anything about it. So it's it's it, you know, kind of a warning to those of you that might be a little bit lax in your online security. I mean, I know I was for a while there and I probably still have some information that's out there that I don't want people to know. But you know, it's just, it's one of those things that doxing isn't always as hard as people think it is, you know, because people just put stuff out there and it's, it, people can do whatever they want with that information. So yeah. just, I mean, uh, a lot of your information is already, already publicly available. Like I could Google you and find you on like whitepages.com and find your address most likely. Yeah. Or my phone number. Your phone number as well. Yeah. And if you have a super common name, don't use any of those like, uh, instant background checker things because it'll mix you with like everyone who shares that name oh yeah but yeah no doxing is very easy especially once you start getting into the dark web too oh yeah yeah they have all kinds of uh there are actually softwares now where and it's not particularly new technology but there are softwares where you can plug in a person's name you can plug in all the information that you know about them their name their phone number whatever like that and then that software will cross-reference every piece of information that is available on that person on the internet and you can come up with things like their social security number bank account bank account information emails passwords all kinds of stuff about these people that you wouldn't be able to get or normally otherwise right and speaking of passwords again a little tip for you guys uh, that might be listening uh, if you ever see on Facebook or on Tumblr or not Tumblr on Twitter or on Instagram or something like that it's like oh my god like you know uh, what's the name of your firstborn pet and what year were you born what month were you born as those little fun games those are phishing attempts yeah. they are a way that people can get access to your personal information so that they can use it to maybe reset your password or to find out like you know <laughs> your bank account information because they know your name and then you have your password reset and it's like, hey, what street did you grow up on? It's like, yeah. oh, that's your security code password or that's your security code question. Your, your rock star name is your father's middle name and your mother's maiden name. Exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah, like that. So just don't fall for those things. Don't fall for them. Right. Yeah. If anything, be ridiculous. Yeah. Right. Put it in the most random my things mother's, you can think. My mother's maiden name was Bartholomew Chungus III. You know? <laughs> What was your mother's maiden name? My mother was a hamster. And your father smelled of elderberries. Yes. Hey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> vigilantes have been around since like Roman times. At least oh. the word vigilante has some connection to Roman times. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the modern word vigilante actually stems from the, uh, I believe it was the Spanish word for uh, the police that they had back in um, the early 1800s, I believe it was, which was something along the lines of vigilante, um, which we just translated into directly into vigilante. And it came... Man, how did they translate that one? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it was just so out there. And it really came around. It was really popular in the mid to late 1800s, or the mid to early 1800s, excuse me, um, which actually brings me to my first example of vigilantism throughout history, uh, which is the San Francisco Committee of Vigilance. And these guys were, uh, they popped up a couple of times, but uh, to give you a little background on it, 
prior to about 1848, uh, San Francisco, the California territory just gotten taken from Mexico and San Francisco was maybe like a hundred people strong. And then they discovered gold in them, their hills. And then all of a sudden you have thousands of people that are just flocking to the San Francisco area. Between 1848 and by the time 1851 happened, there were 25,000 people that were living in San Francisco, in the San Francisco greater area, all right? And of course, naturally, 25,000 people are gonna bring with them 25,000 different problems. And not all of those problems are easily solvable. You know, there was a whole bunch of crime, petty theft, murder, larceny, and even there were roving gangs of bandits and gangs that were running around. And the local law enforcement that, that, that was in San Francisco, they just couldn't keep up. There was no way that they could stop all of these crimes. Um, and of course, petitions from the federal government didn't do anything because this is prior to like the international railroad system. So like it would take you months to even receive word back about what was happening. And by then, you know, the whole town could be on fire. But the, the town was doing well for itself economically. You know, there were businesses that were propping up. There was gold everywhere. So it wasn't like the town was hurting for wealth. So what these people did with these wealths, specifically what one man did, uh, goes by the name of Sam Brannan. Sam Brannan, excuse me. Um, in 1851, he formed the Committee of Vigilance in San Francisco. And he had about 700 other members. Um, Sam Brannan at the time, he was the wealthiest man in California by all accounts. He owned several businesses that were all to, geared towards like, you know, miners and mining and all kinds of property businesses and stuff like that. And the other, most of the other 700 members of the vigilance community were also, or the vigilance community, excuse me, were also businessmen. So this was a white collar group of individuals that got together and were just tired of the way that things were happening. And they were tired of their businesses being looted. They were tired of the roving gangs of bandits that were running around causing chaos. And so they got together and they decided to do something about it. And they operated for about a year. And in that year, they actually instituted their own brand of vigilante justice. You know, they had trials. They had, they actually arrested and hanged four people that were convicted of gang-related crimes and, you know, other types of violent crimes. Uh, they banished a bunch of people and, like, deported them. So, like, they just kicked them out of the state and kicked them out of the city. But interestingly enough, the majority of people that they did put on trial, they actually went free, right? Because the trial concluded that they didn't do anything wrong. So they just released them, right? And then the committee died in about 1852-ish, right? And a couple of years later in 1856, there's just political corruption run rampant, right? The city is just overrun with more crime, more corruption. And so in 1856, uh, William Tell Coleman, uh, one of the other very, very well-known, very influential uh, members of the community, uh, he revives the Vigilance Committee, uh, except this time it's got about 6,000 members strong, so much more powerful presence um, than it was in 1851. Uh, their goal, though, was a bit more ambitious. Instead of like rooting out just in general crime, they really wanted to get rid of the corruption in the government. So they basically took over the government of San Francisco. And eventually the committee, right, the Committee of Vigilance, it, it transformed into the People's Party. It became a legitimate, you know, government organization, uh, the People's Party, which folded into the Republican Party in 1867, right? And it's really one of the things that it's important to realize about 
this committee and these people in general is that, again, the people who started them, William Tell Coleman and Sam Brannan, they were already incredibly influential people within their own societies. So it's not like this was just some random, rando civilian that was tired of the violence and the corruption. These were people that had stake in what was going on. So you could definitely raise the question of, was there more to it than just this want of vigilante justice of trying to protect their community? They, there's definitely a, uh, a layer of, you know, wanting to protect themselves and protect their assets that can be involved in this. Uh, so much so that when you actually look more into the 1851 committee, the majority of the crimes that they were concerned with were arson. And because uh, arson was a big problem back in the, back in you know San Francisco back in the day, but interestingly enough, the majority of the businessmen who were a part of that committee, they would have benefited from a high amount of arson cases because rebuilding and reconstruction was a good business. So if you had a building that was set on fire and then you arrested some people for it who may or may not have actually done it, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you're getting money in your pocket because people need to pay to build that building back up. They need to pay the workers. They need to pay for the supplies, for the specialty items and all that stuff, the insurance payouts, all of that, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so there's, there's just a lot that you really can think about and talk about when you go into these actual organizations because organizations cost money. You can't just build something from nothing, right? right? So what better way to build an organization of vigilant, of vigilante, you know, crime fighters than with a bunch of white collar business people who have a crap ton of capital and not a whole lot to do with except for protect their own assets, you know? Yeah. Very kind of, uh, court of owls. Yeah. You know, um, it seems, you know, kind of conspiracy-esque, you know, this this group of people that has all the power in the world, all the money in the world, and then they just want to seize even more of it, right? But yeah, that, just hearing about that, that sounds like uh, like Neighborhood Watch on steroids. It kind of like, is, yeah. <laughs> they, they had a competing police force, essentially. Yeah. Which is an interesting idea. Yeah, and then uh, again, you know, with the 1856 committee, they they became the government. You know, this committee of vigilance right. became the government. They took over the government. You know, using this excuse of government corruption, which may or may not have rang true. You know, I'm sure that you know it was the old west. There was gold flowing everywhere. It wouldn't have been hard for you to slip a you know gold bar under the mayor's desk and have him look the other way on things, right? But at the end of the day, it was still a power grab because this vigilance committee absolutely took over the government. They instituted their own laws, they instituted their own form of justice, and then they folded into the Republican Party. So they became an official political party. So there's no denying that the committee of vigilance, this vigilante group, however they started out, they ended up on top in power with legitimate authority. So what you're saying is they didn't like how the government was being run, so they essentially made their own government. Basically. That sounds familiar. That sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, taking a page right out of uh, several other history books, you know? <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, you could argue in some ways that, like, the Founding Fathers were, in a sense, vigilantes. They didn't like how uh, King George was treating the colonies, so they oh, yeah. were like, hey, we're going to do our own thing. Goodbye. One man's vigilante group is another man's terrorist organization. Which know? actually brings me to one of the things I want to touch on. Okay. You know, vigilantes aren't 
I, I guess it would depend on your perspective of good, but like post Civil War, all the lynchings are technically fall under vigilantes. You, yeah. So I, I want to be real careful when we talk about this, particularly um, the lynchings from a white male perspective were absolutely framed as bringing these people to justice. Right, and that's what I wanted to get at. Like, from a historical perspective, we know that there was no justice involved in that. Oh, no, no, not it at was, all. It was a way for them to keep power. It was a way for them to keep the newly freed black Americans in fear and under control and under their thumb and to not give them any bright ideas about trying for more, right? But they absolutely, you know, to your to your point, they absolutely framed it as this is justice. This is a vigilante justice. The government's not helping us out, so we have to do this ourselves. And I'm sure there's quite a few of them that truly believe that. Oh, no doubt. So that's kind of where I wanted to get into. Like, vigilante isn't necessarily for good or for evil. It's just someone who takes the law into their own hand. With their own idea of what is morally justified as being vigilantism yeah and i i think i think punisher touches on it a little bit better but like most superhero comics always portray vigilantes in this like heroic light and and glorifies it but it's not always you know superman that's out there no not that we could stop superman anyway but like (laughs) right it's and there's when, when you talk about, you know, culturally accepted vigilantism and what isn't culturally accepted, more specifically what's not culturally accepted vigilantism, there's a ton of people that we can talk about. I mean, oh. more recently, you know, and if you want to talk about directly, like, you know, just happened yesterday history, Kyle Rittenhouse falls perfectly in line with this debate about whether or not it is socially accepted vigilantism or not. Because Kyle Rittenhouse, whether we like to admit it or not, the facts of the case are that Kyle Rittenhouse was somewhere he wasn't supposed to be with a weapon he wasn't supposed to have. And he was defending, you know, or at least he claims to be defending somebody else's property that had nothing to do with him, right? He was acting as a vigilante and two people died. He took the law in his own hands. He was somewhere he shouldn't have been, and he was with something he shouldn't have had. And so you can call him a vigilante if you'd like. You're technically not wrong. But the question is, is it acceptable? And depending on where you fall on the political aisle of the spectrum, you know, some people say that it was 100% justified. Some people say that it wasn't. I'm not going to give my opinion on it because that's not what we're talking about. But it uh, it does bring up the debate about whether or not there is a such thing as a good or a bad vigilante. And how do we then define it? Right. Especially when you're in, this goes even deeper when you talk about cross-culturally, you know, because different cultures have different ideas of what's good and what's bad and what's morally right and what's morally justifiable. So one man's, uh, going back to the idea of one man's vigilante is another man's terrorist, you know? Mm -hmm. The Taliban, they might consider themselves to be vigilantes acting outside of their own government's interest or acting for whatever religious dogmatic purpose that they decide to be morally justifiable, right? So if you want to extend the definition way beyond to just people taking the law into their own hands, we can talk about everybody as being a vigilante in one way or another, you know? I was going to say too, also the Italian, like the Italian mafias Mm. uh, more or less started off as these like neighborhood vigilante groups because back uh, when they started forming, 
like police response times, especially in smaller towns, was so abysmal mm. that they offered protection. And of course, you know, as uh, Harvey said, you know, you either die a hero, see yourself live long enough to become the villain. Yeah. They, they ended up turning into what they were, but like they did start off as kind of like a neighborhood watch almost. And it was the same thing with the Crips and with the Black Panther Party. You know, both of the, you know, Crips stands for community reform in progress. Like that's what the organization was built upon. And then the poverty and the police violence and the gang violence just ran rampant throughout the community. And eventually they became what we know them as now, which is a street gang. You know, so it, it really does blur the line and make it almost invalid, make vigilantism almost invalid, because it's like as if you continue to do this, if you continue to go down this road, eventually you become the bad guy, no matter what you're doing, you know? Yeah. And I think in some weird way that uh, they, they try to represent that with like Batman's code of no killing. Mm. Have you seen the... Was it the Under the Red Hood animated movie? I believe so. Is that the one with, uh, I think that was the one with Jensen Ackles as the Red Hood? I'm not sure. I believe John DiMaggio was the Joker in that one. Yes. Yes, I did. Which, I like, he might not be, you know, one of those guys that redefines who the Joker is, but he does a damn good job. Oh, that was a job. Yeah. And, uh... In it, he has the speech to Jason Todd saying, you know, the reason I don't kill is because, you know, if I do that, that's taking the easy way. And then what's to stop me from the next time? Right. Just taking that easy way. And I mean, we can debate Batman's actions and the absolute just trauma he causes the ER. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think that's kind of a good representation of that though like you know how long will like a vigilante neighborhood watch go until they start trying to take that easy way and then that neighborhood watch ends up becoming the monster that they were trying to protect from right yeah you know when you stare into the abyss the abyss stares back yeah the only difference is you blinked yeah (laughs) (laughs) that was another uh what was that one the I forget what movie it was. I think it was, um, God, I can't remember now. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But, um, but yeah, no, <laughs> I'm sure does, someone, someone on the internet will oh, yell at us. Somebody the in the comments are going to, yeah, no. Yeah. Um, but it does bring up the, the good point though. And, you know, we can again have this debate where at a certain point, you know, villains like the Joker or Bane or, you know, stuff like that, you know, real, real bad guys, you know, bad guys that exist in fiction. Real quick, if anyone hasn't figured it out yet, we are pretty big nerds. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But those real bad guys, the people that have murdered hundreds of thousands of people, at what point does the responsibility for all their crimes they've committed after the first time that Batman captured them. At what point does Batman become responsible for all of those bodies? Because if we talk about, you know, the, the, the Joker's broken out of Arkham Asylum, what, like 50 million times, and he's killed 100 million people over the course of his tenure, like Batman easily could stop that by just kind of, you know, ending it once and for all. To, to be fair, I assume in the Batman universe, the Joker has to go through some sort of trial. Yes. So where where does the government come in on that? Like, 
Well, but that's they, the thing. they keep putting him in Arkham. He keeps escaping. It's not like Batman's choosing to put him in Arkham. No, but so here's the thing about the, does, does Gotham not have a death penalty? I mm, oh, you know what? That's actually a good point. The death penalty, yeah. But can you give? And this is again, this goes into the topic of like you know the different rights of individuals because the Joker is very clearly batshit insane. Um, so can you give somebody the death penalty who is just very clearly that crazy? And I mean, I'm sure we can pull out instances of where that's happened. Um, yeah. Um, I, I mean, generally speaking, I don't think it's right to put someone who is who is like mentally incapacitated mm. in su- to such an extent. Uh, I don't believe it's fair to give them the death penalty. Uh, but in a case of someone like the Joker, like at, at what point there, there's got to be a point to where that's no longer an excuse. Yeah. Enough was, is enough. I was going right? to say when he routinely tries to kill large masses of people, I, I think it's time just to put them down. Yeah. And, you know, maybe in that case, if the law doesn't want to do it, Batman probably should. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe that's a good argument for, like, I mean, we don't have a real world Joker, no. but no. if there was a real world equivalent of the Joker and he just keeps escaping from jail keeps or murdering hundreds of hundreds people, hundreds of time. people at a time. Yeah. yeah. Like, it might be time to just kind of take them out yeah Yeah. no but you mentioned that idea of taking the hard way of batman saying you know the reason why i don't kill is because killing is the easy thing to do it's the hard thing to keep doing what's right let me tell you the story of andre bambersky okay real quick before we get into that there's one thing i wanted to touch on with uh kyle rittenhouse okay go ahead uh just an opinion on uh you saw the clip of him crying Oh yeah. What, do you think that was real? Do you think that was, or he was faking it? I, I, I will tell you this. I have never seen an individual cry in that manner before. I'm sure that there is somebody out there that cries that way. Well, I've seen people cry that way. But it just, I, I, all right, then you've seen it. But I personally, I've never seen it. I don't think that those were genuine tears. I think that, in my personal opinion, that he was putting on a show. Um, but. I'm not going to say that he's not genuinely upset about what happened and that he doesn't feel guilty or anything like that. But that particular incident, I believe, was performative, in my opinion. See, I'm not too sure because uh, the way he was trying to, like, talk and catch his breath. Like, I've had those big, ugly cries where you're still trying to explain something and you get your breath caught like that. And it's it's so hard to replicate, but it's like that... (sighs) trying to talk um and that's really hard to fake so i'm just like i'm not i'm not sure um i i sincerely hope those were genuine tears i hope he does feel remorse because and i i think a lot of people who end up taking a life whether accidentally or purposely don't realize the weight of taking a life you know? Yeah. I, I think a lot of veterans have even said it's not even like the death around you that gets you. It's like the actual taking of lives that kind of gets to you. I mean, I'm sure it's both, but I think uh, from what I'm sorry, I'm trying to recall something from memory. 
Uh, but I think they said it's the actual taking of human life that gets to you more. Yeah, there's there's a lot when you know talking about you know veterans and and the actual act of killing somebody in the moment. It's usually a you know do or die. Don't have time to think. Right, don't right. have time to blink, and then it just happens. Right. But afterwards, when you actually have time to decompress and you actually have time to sit down and think about what you've done, you realize that you just killed a person. And that person, you know, even even in times of war, you know, even when you know that that person is your ideological enemy, you think about, well, did that person have a family? Did they, were they forced to fight? Were they conscripted? You know, because even, you know, during World War II, there was conscription in the military. So not everybody who was fighting for the American forces wanted to fight. Certainly not everybody who was fighting for Germany wanted to fight. So you think about these people, how many innocent people are caught in the crossfire because they don't not fight. And then at what point do you as a person, as an innocent bystander, then if you are given a gun and you go off to war, at what point do you then become a true combatant, a true soldier? And is your life justifiably, or can you justify your life being taken away? And it's a huge, huge debate. Oh, yeah. Um, especially within the veteran community about like, you know, with, with the recent, you know, war in Iraq and Afghanistan, 20 years happening, but we know, like we met and have talked to and have had conversations and built relationships with people that the next week they're shooting at us, right? And then you got to come to terms with the fact that, okay, this person that I thought that I could trust is now shooting at me, but what's the bigger story here? Did the Taliban come and kidnap his wife or threaten to marry off his daughter? Or did they just show up and say, hey, we're going to kill you unless you go out fighting? So right. there's it, it, it becomes incredibly complicated. But right. at the end of the day, the, the, the thought that I just killed somebody, it still rings in your head. Even in situations of actual legitimate self-defense where there is a clear cut, you know, you're going to die if you don't shoot this person. Right, right. But yeah, um, my, my hope is that he kind of just kind of got caught up in the moment and didn't realize how much this is going back to Kyle. Uh, what I'm hoping for him is that he kind of just got caught up in the the kind of like glamorization of like being a vigilante and and uh, the news cycle, this, that, and the other. And I hope those were genuine tears and he realized how heavy a human life is. And hopefully that changes his perspective. I would hope so. That's that's what I'm hoping. And I, I like I said, I can't tell if they were real or fake tears, but that, that's what I hope. You know, right. I, I hope because I believe in redemption. I, I hope. And I mean, you you also got to think about Kyle Rittenhouse. He's still a kid. Yeah. Even if he's now legally an adult at 18 years old, you know, still you're 18 kid. years old. You're still a kid. You know, I'm 31. Brain, I still think myself as a kid. Yeah, your brain <laughs> is still developing. I mean, there's a reason why they say that you shouldn't do these certain things before you're the age of 25 because your brain is still developing. Right? Exactly. So his brain is still developing. His ideas and his ideologies, especially when you consider that at the college age level, from the ages of 18 to 22. Your ideologies and your knowledge base and all of that just explodes all over the place and you become four different people over the course of four different years. So he's still trying to figure out who he is as a person. And unfortunately, the unfortunate reality is that 
now he has to do all of that while contending with the fact that he is a a killer. He has killed two people. And that is going to have a huge impact on who he becomes in the future and how he frames his environment and his perspectives in the future. Because, like it or not, certain media outlets and certain groups of people have latched onto this kid. They have latched onto Kyle Rittenhouse and they are not going to let him go. And that is also going to have an impact on how he behaves, how he transforms, and how he evolves as an adult. Right? If you become heralded as a hero, then that's going to have an impact on how you behave and how you respond from here on out, right? If he decides to soak it in and become the glorified hero that he is, then he might grow up to have, you know, a big old head and become an absolute jerk and potentially even hurt more people yeah, right? because he feels like what he did was justified. If on the flip side of that, he really does sit down and weigh the consequences of his actions and decide, you know what, I'm never doing this again. This is too much for me. I'm out and he just kind of fades away into obscurity, which honestly, in my opinion, is the best case scenario for this, is that he just fades away into obscurity and lives his own life and does, you know, hopefully better from now on, then that's gonna, he's gonna turn into a completely different person. So the environment and, and who he interacts with from here on out is also going to change who he becomes as a person. And that's gonna impact how he deals with these deaths. Ma'am. So. Yeah, like I said, I, that's just my hope for all my hope he gets that solitude time to reflect and you know right but moving on to your uh, right <laughs> to your next um, story I, I just wanted to ask about the the crying thing right okay yeah no I mean that's that's fair um, so Andre Andre Bamberski right he uh, was a Frenchman and he a little, little background for the story uh, him and his family his wife uh, Daniela I hope I'm pronouncing that right is yeah wife Daniela and his daughter Kalinka right they were a family that lived together in France during the 1970s and 80s, right? And his wife, Daniela, she started having an affair with this German physician named Dieter Kombach. I think I'm pronouncing that right, I don't know. Well, somewhere around the late 70s, early 80s, she ditched Andre for Dieter, uh, divorced him, moved to Germany, right? And then they shared custody of their daughter, Kalinka. So, summer of 1982, Kalinka goes to stay with her mother in Germany. And on the morning of July 10th, Dieter goes to wake up Kalinka and she's dead. She's non-responsive. The police come and they declare her dead on arrival, right? Here's where things start to get kind of sketchy. You see, the night before, Dieter had given Kalinka an iron supplement, right? He said that this was um, supposed to help with her tanning. Um, and then he later switched it up to saying that it was supposed to be for anemia. Um, but either way, he gave her an iron supplement. And then as he gave this iron supplement to her, she started feeling unwell. She was feeling a little sick. Um, so he gave her a sleeping pill and then he sent her off to bed. And then that next morning, she wakes up dead, right? To make things even sketchier. Chase, yeah. I don't think you can wake up dead. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> to make things even sketchier, right? Just adding more fuel to the fire. Dieter, who is again a physician, he's actually present for the autopsy. Now, from, from a law enforcement perspective and from a medical examination perspective, you are never going to have the last person to see the victim alive present at their autopsy. It doesn't matter what qualifications they have. It, this dude could be the number one medical examiner in the world. He's not in that room. No, it's a conflict of interest. Exactly. That is, just, that is just That's so like a, a wrong huge, on so many levels. huge red flag. Like, so, 
That's not just, you know, waving a red flag. That's beating you in the face with a red exactly. flag. You know, at that point, that's not even a red flag anymore. That's a red billboard, you know? It's, yeah, it's a red neon sign. <laughs> so it just reeks of corrupt. And the autopsy revealed that she, that Kalinka had choked off her own vomit, and she had tearing of her vagina and a fluid resembling semen that was on her legs. Um, she had multiple puncture marks on her legs and her arms. But despite all of this... No toxicology test was conducted. There was no tox. There was no tox screen that was done, um, and the cause of death was listed as unknown. So they never found a true cause of death. Right. This, right. Yeah. Right. They did not find a cause of death. Uh, this absolutely did not sit right with Andre. He pressured the German authorities to conduct further testing, um, which they eventually conceded to. But the forensic testing proved inconclusive. They couldn't identify who had raped her. They didn't know what whose semen was on her body and everything like that. And so Dieter, the number one prime suspect in this case, he walks free. He's, he's away scot-free. And Andre, he could not accept this. So he went to the French authorities and asked them to conduct their own autopsy, which they did. They exhumed Kalinka's body and they performed the autopsy, but there was something wrong. You see, when they performed the autopsy, they found that Kalinka's genitals had been removed. And they were just gone. There was no way to recover them. The German authorities didn't know what happened to them. They were just gone. So it, they, there was nothing that they could do. And by this point, it had been, you know, months at this point after the autopsy. So there was nothing that a, a tox screen could record. So they had dug up the body essentially for nothing. And there was no forensic evidence that could be found that could link to anything. Right. But the plot thickens. What kind of sicko do you have to be to remove the genitals? The kind of sicko that wants to cover his own ass, that's who. Like, yeah, I mean... I... So, Dieter, he had a wife before he met Daniela, right? His first wife, Monica, she died at the age of 24 from this mysterious illness that rendered her mute, blind, and later throughout the illness, paralyzed. Now, Monica's family, they insisted that Dieter was abusive, that he had threatened to kill her. But nothing, nothing ever really came from those types of accusations. On Monica's deathbed, Dieter, who again is a physician, pushed himself in between her and the doctors that were overlooking Monica, injected her with what he claimed was snake venom, for whatever reason, um, and then a little while later she dies. And the cause of death was known as cerebral hemorrhaging, was what they called it. And Dieter was never charged with any crime related to this death, right? Kind of sketchy. You have a guy who's a physician whose wife dies under mysterious circumstances, and then you have that same guy whose then stepdaughter, like however many years later, dies from mysterious circumstances at the autopsy that he was present at. Like, it's just, it's super sketchy. Now, in 1995, the French government did convict Dieter in the death of Kanika, uh, or Kalinka, excuse me, in absentia. Which means that basically they conducted the trial without Dieter being present there, and they did the whole trial, they went through him, he was never questioned, he was never anything, so they just found him guilty. So Andre, he, he took this and he ran with it. He went to Germany and he started passing out flyers, warning people about Dieter, because he was still working as a physician at the time, so they were like, hey, don't go to Dr. Dieter, don't go to this guy, right? And he was like notifying them that he was convicted in France. Right. Because of this, Andre was arrested and he was slapped with a defamation lawsuit where he had to pay out 400,000 German Deutschmarks. So he kind of got the crap out of the stick on that one. Fast forward to 1997, two years later, 
and Dieter Krumbach is actually charged with drugging and raping a 16-year-old patient that he had. Uh, he was sentenced to two years in jail, but the judge suspended the sentence because he was, quote-unquote, an upstanding German citizen and had no prior record. So because of that, the two-year sentence for actually raping and drugging a 16-year-old girl was completely turned over, and he was able to walk away scot-free again. We get to 2000, where Dieter is arrested in Austria in connection with the French conviction, but the European Council of Human Rights deemed that that trial, which was again conducted in absentia, meaning that he was not there for the trial, it was a violation of his human rights. And so the European Council of Human Rights declared that the French verdict was null and void, and so he was the, the conviction was overturned, and he was once again a free man. And he even walked away with even more cash because the French government had to pay him out $20,000 for the defamation of his character or whatever. And this is like the last straw for Andre. Isn't the phrase crime doesn't pay? Crime doesn't pay, you would think, right? Uh, but apparently it does. It, it pays all the time. Maybe I'm in the wrong business. Right? <laughs> so this is like the last straw for Andre. And so he keeps tab on Dieter for the next nine years, just making sure that he was never too far away and just plotting his final revenge. And in the, the summer of 2009, he actually gets it. Dieter is planning to go to Africa, right? He's planning to, to take a trip out to Africa from Germany. And Andre, he knows that if Dieter makes it to Africa, that's it. It's game over. Like, he's never going to be able to get him to justice, to bring him to justice. So he actually enlists the help of Anton Kresnicki, who I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. Um, Anton is basically, I think he was Kosovoian or something like that. Um, but either way, he was an immigrant that um, Andre helped, that Andre paid to kidnap Dieter and bring him back to France. So he does. Um, you know, Anton kidnaps Dieter Krumbach in 2000, and in 2011, the French authorities finally put him on trial again, and they convict him and sentence him to 15 years in prison for the charge of voluntary violence leading to unintentional death with aggravated circumstances. Andre, for organizing the kidnapping, he was slapped on the wrist with one year sentencing in 2014, and then he walked away a free man, right? Um, but Andre, he's, he, or not Andre, um, Dieter, he is still in prison right now. 15 years, serving time. Good. Right. You know, the man raped a 16-year-old girl. He presumably raped and then murdered the, um, the daughter, uh, Kalinka, and he just gets away with it for 30 years 29 years had gone by between the death of Kalinka and his final <clears throat> arrest yeah in general the penalties for rape are just way too lenient in oh, my opinion man that's that's a whole other conversation man i mean we could talk about the, the reason in my opinion and this is you know again just an opinion but the reason why rape is considered such a heinous crime but is most often met with such little consequences is because nobody wants it everybody wants rape to be a heinous crime but nobody in power actually wants the punishment for rape to be that bad because then they'd all get slapped they would all be hearing it right and nobody wants that Nobody in power, anyway, wants that. But that's just my opinion. You take it for what it's worth. Well, I mean, all I really have to say is, like, really? Fuck rich white people. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, the motto of the world, man. Like, Yeah, like, seriously. Like, <laughs> I mean, in general, us white people have had really bad things that we've done. But most specifically, 
rich white men yeah. have been behind a, most of the world's problems. Man, that that's just a whole nother can of worms. Yeah, we'll, we we we're, we'll dedicate a whole podcast to you know fuck rich white people. In fact, I think that's uh, the plan for the next one with. Think, uh, yeah. Well, talking about the uh, epic rap battle, Masamusa versus right? Jeff Bezos. Oh, oh yeah. No, so I, I think we'll we get a good get amount of that. fuck rich white people there. Yeah, we could get heavy into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we'll save that discussion for uh, next yeah, we'll, episode. We'll, we'll table that. We'll table that. <laughs> oh, just twenty nine years. Can you imagine what it must be like to be chasing after your daughter's killer for three decades? After trial, after trial, after trial, where this guy just keeps getting away scot-free, the conviction behind it, and having the willpower and the mental fortitude to not actually go through with just enacting your own justice. Because he went, Andre has been to Dieter's house. He antagonized that man for years, right? He could have easily just done it but he didn't he wanted real what he considered to be real justice he wanted Dieter to pay for his crimes with prison that is a level of restraint and commitment oh boy I yeah I mean I applaud it but I'd probably applaud him if he just walked up and shot the dude right but no the yeah the restraint is very admirable it's the hats off to you, man. I, I I don't think I would have that level of restraint. Yeah, especially when because if you think about it, like from, from my perspective, me personally, if you think about you know you're kidnapping somebody and translating and transporting them across state lines, at that point, what's one more crime? You know, <laughs> like yeah, you're, you're already committing pretty much a felony at that point because I believe it is illegal to forcibly carry somebody across state line or uh, not illegal but I believe it is actually a felony to forcibly carry somebody across state lines I, I, um, I think kidnapping in general is a felony well case, yeah, yeah but like you know just adding <laughs> more felonies onto the list what's yeah. one more yeah you know? <laughs> at that point you just might as well be checking boxes I I hope before he turned him over to the French authorities, he at least got one good hit in. See, I couldn't find anything about that in my articles in Miriam, the research that I Well, I, I don't think you would say it, but I, I hope so. Oh, man. I, you know what I hope? <laughs> I hope it was one, two, three nut shots. One for each of the balls, and then one for good measure. That's what I hope it was. Because, man, that... See, I, I, I would have gone four. Four? One for his uh, ex-wife. One for his stepdaughter, one for the girly, the 16-year-old, mm-hmm. and then one for good measure. Oh, okay. Nice four count. Nice four count, right? And that way he can get two on each, right? There, there you, you go. go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to, or, uh, from, or, a, from a legal standpoint, I would like to suggest that we are not advocating for violence against potential criminals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, legal reasons. <laughs> For legal reasons, we here at What Do You Know do not condone violence. For legal reasons. Uh, or, you know, what would have been good, too? Uh, you've seen, uh, what was it, Casino Royale? Yeah. The Daniel Craig one? Yeah. Where he's in the chair. And oh, it's just I the, love that scene. Yeah. Oh. Hopefully he got a little bit of that kind of justice. <laughs> so just, to the right, to the right, to the right. Bam. Oh, you just scratched, scratched my, my balls. balls. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fantastic representation of, like, the good vigilante right. can do. Right. Because um, at that point, he's 
not necessarily taking justice in his own hands, but he is bringing someone to justice. Right. And I think that's kind of where the fine line is. It's not even fine. Like, it's a very blurry fucking line. Oh yeah. I think, but I think that's kind of where the line is. Is like if you're doing more like, um, I'm sorry, what was his name? Anton. The who, who the, kidnapped him? Yeah. Yeah. The actual guy who kidnapped him was Anton. Yeah. Anton. I think if you're doing like Anton, that's a little better than like Punisher, right? Where you're just you know executing all yeah. these criminals. Judge, jury, and executioner. So with all that being said, everything we've talked about here, you know, we've had examples of how it can be, uh, especially looking back, completely wrong with, like, all the lynchings. But then we have, like, Anton, where he brought this guy to some much-needed justice. Now, what are your thoughts on vigilantes in general? Are they necessary? So, from my perspective, vigilante justice has always been the type of justice that has enacted true change. I mean, if we look at throughout history, you know, the, the, the textbook de- definition of vigilante is that the legal systems are not good enough and you are going to enact your own form of justice. All throughout history, we can see examples of people going against legal systems and forcing change. I mean, if we look at, if we extend our definition of vigilantism to people that are fighting specifically against unjust legal practices, I mean, we can find tons of examples. You know, Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad, right? Slavery was a sanctioned legal process. And she absolutely said, screw that. I am breaking the law to do what is absolutely justifiably morally correct. Breaking the law. Breaking the law. Yeah, that is... (laughs) A perfect example of vigilante justice against the actual corrupt system, right? And it's the same thing with the labor strikers of the Gilded Age, right? You know, people that were going on strike back when going on strike was actually illegal and could be met with military and private military force against you. People went to literal war over these labor disputes and over fighting for what they believed was morally right, even if it wasn't legal at the time. So in my opinion, vigilante justice is the, well, not the only justice, but has historically been the primary justice that has brought about actual effectual change and actual good in the world. Okay. Well, let's narrow the scope a little bit. What about, say, the Punisher-esque and Batman-esque types of vigilantes or Mama Max where he's putting these predators on blast on social media and doing some hiring some unethical hackers or hackers to do some unethical slightly unethical hacking um, and kind of cutting through some of the laws and red tape to try to bring people to justice is that not not talking in a, like a legal sense, but just societally, is that necessary? Absolutely. I believe that societally speaking, if we if we as citizens, as you know, people that do not have the authority that the federal government has, or that we give to the federal government, or the local law enforcement, or anything like that, if we don't do what is right that we know is right, even if the legal systems have not deemed it so, right? We we need to be able to keep our legal and justice systems accountable. And the best way to do that is if 
we feel that justice has not been brought, then we have to bring justice. Now, mind you, when I say this, I want to put a big ass asterisk in front of it because once again, you're blurring the lines and you have to go with, you, you have to understand that your morality doesn't necessarily reflect what society's morality is. So if you find, say, a person that throws away recycling cans in the trash can and you feel that they need to be brought to justice, that execute them. Yeah, you know, that <laughs> that that could be seen as a little off with their head. Um, you know? So you have to be very careful. What we'll do is we'll recycle all those cans and make a guillotine out. There we go. That's uh, it. Yeah. So you have to be very, very careful when if you decide that you want to bring somebody to justice in a vigilante way. You have to be very careful that you can, one, justify it to yourself, and that you can, two, justify it in a court of law. Because rest assured that 99% of the time, if you are a vigilante, you will be brought against the courts, and you will be tried in a jury of your peers. So you have to really have your ducks in a row, and you have to really say, I was doing the right thing, even if I was doing the wrong thing, right? So, do I believe it is necessary? Yes. Will I say that anybody should go out there and become a vigilante? No. Because, once again, from a legal and from a moral perspective, I mean, we as individuals, we don't know what's best. Sometimes, I mean, laws are in place for a reason. We have right. decided, collectively speaking, that we need to give up some of our freedom in order to protect the community as a whole. One of those freedoms is the right to just seek out justice wherever you find it. Right. Yeah. And just so our listeners know, Chase here does have law enforcement background. I do. Yes. Um, so just to put what he's saying into context. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I served as a military police officer for about four years. So admittedly, my law enforcement experience isn't like, you know, much to write home about. But I've been there. I've done the... I've been on the legal aspect and the legal side of things, and I've been on the moral side of things, and I, I know I'm speaking from both a perspective of a formal law enforcement officer and somebody who is also very, very upset and very tired of the way that the legal systems behave in this country. So you're getting the best of both worlds, personally. Yeah. I, I think that would be a great idea for a, a deep dive later on, just like oh, the, yeah. the Blue Coat of Silence and even um, Serpico. Like, I think that'd be Ooh. a great one to do, but we'll table that. Yes, yes, that's on, for that's a on deep, the calendar for a well. deep dive. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, um, I'm kind of on the same boat as you there. I think vigilantism in general is necessary for society, whether it's good, bad, pretty, ugly, indifferent, even reprehensible vigilantes like even the lynching i think is and bear with me on this as i explain it all i think is necessary because i think vigilantes first off vigilantism should never be legalized i think it should always be some form illegal to help balance it out but to really check the power i think it's the responsibility of society so even if something like the lynchings were to happen again it's reprehensible, it shouldn't happen, but it gives chance to society to check that kind of uh, thoughts and behaviors and gives them a chance to say, this is not acceptable. 
and it's kind of like a barometer of where society is at. Um, I don't condone it. I don't agree with anything like that. But I mean, even bad things are necessary sometimes to really gauge where society is at. Um, if, if if that makes any sense, it it kind of so. I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue against it for a second here because I believe that when we talk about the because from a you know cultural perspective, right, different moralities and different things like that. But specifically, when we talk about you know the vigilante history of you know lynchings, about the the people who believe that they were you know being vigilantes um, by lynching, and it's it comes with an asterisk because. Even the people back then knew what they were doing was wrong. It was just a question of could they justify it to themselves. I mean, you know, we could go further back into history and we can talk about people like Christopher Columbus and all the horrible things that he did. But even then, they still knew that it was wrong. Real quick. Yeah. Because we decided we're going to keep this PG-13, which means we get one F word. Right. I think it's totally acceptable to use it for... Fuck Christopher Columbus. I think we've already, I think we've used about like four or five F words now, just saying. Toby, I, I don't yeah. care, but like, yeah. if I can emphasize one, it's going to be fuck Christopher Columbus. Right. That no, might be but, two. But, but, um, <laughs> but uh, going back to it, it, the moral compass of the world has not shifted that much. And even racist people nowadays. They know, deep down, you have to know that you're on the wrong side. You can't justify committing such a heinous act against somebody for something that they have no control over, something like skin color, right? Mm -hmm. There's no moral justification that makes any sense to the functioning, mature human mind that says this person deserved it because of something that they didn't do but who they are so when it comes to understanding the quote-unquote necessity of bad vigilantes of vigilante groups that they are absolutely in the wrong i don't think that those groups get a pass i don't think that they are looked upon as you know the necessary evil quote-unquote to see to sort of gauge where we are and to give us an opportunity to be better i think that Instead, we collectively as a society take a look at those instances and we say, okay, how are we going to gauge this as what we're willing to put up with? Right. I I think that's more what I was trying to get at. I think you're putting it a little more succinctly than I did. They aren't necessary as in they need to happen. They're necessary as in... At the end of Metal Gear Solid 2, um, like post credits or mid-credits, Solid Snake has a speech, and in it he says, we need to let future generations read our sad and messy messy history by its own light. And I think that's where the necessity for things like that comes in. But but again, I would argue that it's still not necessary. There's never a necessity for an evil act to occur. It's just a question of, does this act occur, and what can we make out of it? So to say that something was necessary, that would be like saying that, like, you know, 
World War II was necessary for us to understand the implications of dropping the atom bomb, or for us to understand the implications of an actual genocide, like the genocide of the Jews in World War II. It's never necessary, but what the but the lessons that we can take from those heinous actions are still there. Does that make them necessary? No. Should we ever justify their existence by saying that they were necessary because we can learn these lessons from them? No. So I'm going to make the argument that it's never necessary for these heinous instances to happen. But because they do happen and because we can't change the fact that they did happen, we have an obligation to then take what those heinous acts were and create lessons from them. They're not necessary, but because they happened and because they, like, we can't change the fact that, you know, black people were lynched specifically for being black, but what we can do is we can take those lessons and we can say, how did these people justify these behaviors? What can we learn from what they did? And what can we learn from people's responses for it? And how can we make ourselves better next time? Right. Again, I, I think I'm just having a hard time putting it into words. Again, I think you're putting it more succinctly than I am. I think instead of saying uh, they are necessary, like the the horrible things like that do serve a role in the sense that like, okay. yes, yeah, yes. like they are a barometer of like the society at the time and it's necessary that we examine them. Yes. Okay. Uh, I will. Yes. Yeah. Like I said, I think you're putting it more succinctly than I am, uh, but that is what I'm trying to get at. Okay. This, you know is why I should probably actually take better notes <laughs> um, and, and put a little more thought into how I want to word things. Right. Um, that's not going to change though. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. That's why I'm here. So exactly. I, I am your other mouthpiece. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also to add to your qualifications, Chase is a history major. Yes. So that, that is also a thing. Um, I, I'm just some random jackass that's friends with him. Oh, don't sell yourself so short. That's my job. Yeah, well, you know, you met the height requirement for the army by, what, half an inch? <laughs> um, you are soldiers, now available in fun size. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, just vigilantes in general are, I agree, are necessary. I think it should always be illegal, and I think they need to be tempered by society. Just like how governments, our government has checks and balances, quote unquote, has checks and balances. I, I think society has that checks and balance with like vigilantes. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, the, the, the reason why vigilantes exist is because we have these systems that sometimes fail. You know, and specifically in the American justice system, it has most often failed in the cases of protecting the actual people at the bottom. You know, you, you've always had this corruption of power and this corruption of money where money gets you everything. I mean, and uh, the Dieter Krumbach's case is a perfect example of that. This dude was a physician. He was a well-known, well-respected German figure. I believe he was part of the German consulate. And that shielded him and allowed him to do all of these heinous things because he had that authority, because he had that power, that wealth, that social currency that gave him the quote-unquote right 
to do these things. Yeah. Or at least that he felt that he had the right to do these things. Yeah. And uh, this will probably be um, a topic for another day, but I, I think you're... Uh, I don't want to say punishment because I don't like the idea of having a necessarily having a, a prison system based on punishment. I like ideas of prison systems based on reform, mm. but like your the the justice you are met with should be scaled up to your wealth and influence and power. It's funny you should mention that. Did you know that I believe it's in Sweden? If you get a parking ticket or a speeding ticket, it's, yes. it's it goes off of a percentage of your income. Yes, and you know, it, like because a hundred dollar fine is going to hurt me a hell of a lot more than it's going to hurt Jeffrey Bezos. Yeah. Like for him, that's just I'm paying to park here. Yeah, you know, yeah, like there's a, a famous quote that if um, the penalty for breaking the law is a fine, then that law only exists for the poor. Exactly. Uh, I've heard that. I've heard that quote attributed to a lot of places. My favorite was um, Final Fantasy VII. Uh, but I don't know where it actually came from. I can't. I've never actually tracked down the original quote. Yeah. But yeah, like it's absolutely, it's absolutely true. If at any point in time a law is met with a fine, that just means that it's okay as long as you have the money to do it, which is never how the world should work. That's certainly not how justice should work. Again, rich white people. Rich white people, <laughs> man. They just they ruin it for everybody. Yeah. Some more than others, though. I will say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where I'm going to leave the vigilante topic. Like, it, it's necessary, it's messy, but history is incredibly messy. Oh, um, no I, uh, Vigilantes really kind of push social change, I think. And political change, too. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I can't condone vigilantes, but it's a necessary thing in society. I'm not saying that you should go out and be a vigilante, but if you are a vigilante, I'm not going to be the one to stop you. Because that would make me a vigilante. Hey, full circle. Yeah. So, let's give one more shout out to Phoenix Jones. because One more shout out to Phoenix Jones. And the real life superheroes, because a lot of them do great work. Because it's not all just going out and beating up thugs on the street. Uh, I don't know if they're still doing a lot. I haven't checked in with them in a while. But they would dress up in their costumes, go to like soup kitchens and help bring attention to things. Yeah. There is, uh, I think there's one woman in New York City that would walk drunk women home so they were safe. Like, it doesn't take much to be a hero. No, not at all. Um, it, it, and it really boils down to just doing what you feel is needed in your community. You know, mm -hmm. even if that is as doing as little as just, you know, donating to charity or. Um, educating people on certain issues in your community because not everybody has the same resources. So I might not be able to go and actually physically, you know, walk a woman down the street to make sure that she gets to her house very uh, to safely. But I can say to somebody like, you know, you, who was a big, strong man, I can say, hey, uh, this woman doesn't feel comfortable walking down the street. You think you can help her, right? Just doing stuff like that is enough in, in a lot of cases. Exactly, right? exactly. And, you know... It doesn't have to be big, grand gestures to be a hero. It can be small things. Like your example there, I actually had to do something like that not too long ago. Uh, one of my friends was at work, and she thought she saw her abusive ex. And, you know, her work's five minutes down the road from me. She called me, so I went down there, check it out. She had a half hour left at work. I just hung around with her, made sure she got into her car safe. She texted me when she got home. Like, it doesn't take much, guys. There you go. We can all be heroes. 
And you know, if you're feeling a little bit extra, go ahead and get that fucking superhero outfit. Like, come up with the idea. Make it fun. Be loud and be proud. There we go. So, um, I think this is a good end for our first episode. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to doing this again. 100%. We had some good uh, constructive uh, conversation there. A couple of short jokes. Always the short jokes. (laughs) In case you guys haven't realized, I'm short. Maybe if we get enough followers and people request how short I am, we'll do a height reveal later. (laughs) I'll make sure he's not wearing platform shoes. (laughs) So with that, all you fine folks out there, I just want to say love each other. Love yourself. Peace out.